The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, and thank you for joining us for Episode 6 of Green Sports Pod. Most of Gary Gilliam's notoriety to date has been for his five seasons in the NFL as an offensive tackle, three of them with the Seattle Seahawks. Now, Gilliam is looking to tackle three related massive societal problems. One, systemic oppression and racism. Two, hopelessness and homelessness. And three, food deserts and other forms of environmental and climate degradation. His solution is the Bridge Eco Village, sustainable mixed-use inner-city developments where people of color and other underserved communities will have the opportunity to work, eat, live, learn, and play. We will get to the inspirational football as well as the opportunity-building and ecopreneur aspects of Gilliam's incredible story in short order. How did he get the wisdom the fortitude, and the creativity to envision the Bridge Eco Village and to make it a reality. We have to go back to Gilliam's childhood to begin to get the answers to that question. Gilliam was being raised by a struggling single mom in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What may not be well known about the state's capital city is that its African-American community, as well as other communities of color, suffer from the horrible, life-defining symptoms of systemic oppression and racism, as well as lack of opportunities. So Gilliam was on the road to a life without much hope until... When I was eight years old, I was actually put into a private boarding school, and not your typical boarding school. This boarding school was founded for orphans back in 1909 by the great chocolatier Milton Hershey. Him and his wife couldn't have kids, but they still wanted to be involved in kids' lives and still give back in that way. So they took a huge chunk of their chocolate factory and made a deed for the school to provide this opportunity. And through time, it wasn't just for orphans. It was actually founded for little white orphan boys in 1909. Through the civil rights movement in the 60s, black males were admitted. Through the 70s and 80s, females were admitted. And by the time that I went in the late 90s, it was no longer just for orphans, but for financially needy families, families below the poverty line, single parent homes, still your orphans, foster kids that are in bad situations, things like that. So kids that don't have the environment nor the resources to fulfill their potential. It's a completely cost-free school. They pay for your housing, your food, schooling. And the best part about it is once you graduate, they actually pay for college. The way it was set up, wherever you got accepted, you ever pay for your entire college education except for $2,000. So a tremendous opportunity, you know, for kids coming from these type of environments and these backgrounds to have a chance to break some generational curses in reality. Getting the eight-year-old Gilliam out of Harrisburg and into the Milton Hershey School was certainly life-changing and for the good. How his mom went about dropping him off at the school that first year, well, you just have to hear it for yourself. 
So I actually thought that I was going to be going to a summer camp. You know, we had come to the campus of a few weeks before and I was getting fitted for like clothes and stuff. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. They're going to give us like a uniform while we're, you know, doing our summer camp for a couple of weeks. That's kind of cool. And then I came back to go to the school and I had no idea. Mom, you know, we pulled up to my student home. Mom was like, hey, Junior, go play at playground. I'm going here to sign some paperwork and I'll be right back. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, go up on the playground, doing my thing. And then mom comes back out. So, you know, I run down the hill and, I'll, and go to get in the car. And she's like, oh, no, you can stay here. I got to go around a corner and grab a few more things. And I'll be right back to pick you up. And I was like, okay. You know, I didn't think otherwise and whatever. So, you know, I go back and continue to play. Hour goes by. Another hour goes by. It starts to get dark. And then a the house parent comes out and he's like, hey, Gary, it's time to come inside and, and shower and get ready for bed. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're talking about shower and bed, but like, I'm out. So I hopped off the swing and started walking down the, the driveway toward where my mom said she was going to be at. And, you know, she just didn't have the strength to tell me that this is that she would drop me off here and, and to leave. So fast forward and you know, my mom and I have kind of had conversations about that. And she explained to me that that day was the hardest day of her life. And that on that hour and a half drive home, every single exit, she turned around on the highway to come pick me back up. And she got close and then would turn back around and go back home, get an exit further and come back. And it took her a very long time to get back home just because she, you know, she's dropping her child off there. But she understood that that was the best thing for me to get me out of the environment of no resources and no opportunity in a city like Harrisburg. How do you overcome being left like that by your mom? For Gilliam, it was the plethora of extracurricular activities offered by the Milton Hershey School that helped, sports among them. Now, what really helped was all the different activities and opportunities they had at Milton Hershey to essentially distract myself from missing my mom, to get involved in soccer, ice hockey, get involved in learning how to play the piano or learn how to play the bass violin, obviously all the different sports and stuff the different extra or co-curricular activities that they had allowed me, one, to distract myself from missing my mom, but then two, it allowed me to become well-rounded and, and I'd learned that I was actually pretty good at a few of these different things. So I was exposed to them and then that was nurtured. So I grew into the beautiful plant you know, that I was supposed to be. Gilliam had to grow up fast at the school and in fifth grade, his mom put that maturity to the test. So started to get involved in things and started to like it, making friends. I was already a decent kid in school, so I never had an issue there. But it was like, all right, cool, this is fine. And then it got to a point where mom, she got herself on her feet, was able to save up some money. And she was like, hey, do you, do you want to come home? Like, you don't need to be at this school anymore. If you want to come home, I can. And I, you know, I remember it, it was fifth grade and I was like, no. You know, I, I think being here is not only what's best for me, but what's best for our family. And I understood that at a young age. I know why I'm here, mom. I know why you put me here now. I've learned, I figured it out over the last few years. And this is what's best. I know you want me to come home because you see me growing and you feel as though you're not a part of that growth, but this is what's needed. This is the environment that I need to be in. And plucking me out in fifth grade, 10, 11, 12 years old is the worst time you could have put me back into a Harrisburg environment. Just how bad was it? And just how bad is it in Harrisburg? And why are things that bad? To Gilliam, the answers come down to systemic racism and oppression. Harrisburg is the epitome of, of systematic oppression, if you will. In terms of the, the funding for schools, obviously that comes from property values. The, the homeowner rate is extremely low in Harrisburg. Most people are only renting. The school district for the capital of Pennsylvania is ranked 496 of 498 school districts. 
it's a food desert. There's one grocery store in the entire city limits of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Listening to Gilliam, I was struck by two feelings. One, resignation. I grew up outside of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and Bridgeport sounds very much like Harrisburg in terms of the hopelessness, the food deserts, and the rest. Two, shock. Despite knowing what I know, I was still in disbelief. How could this happen in a state capital in the United States? Maybe I'm just naive. It's by design because you go across the bridge in Harrisburg and you get to the West Shore and you've got four grocery stores in like two miles of each other. And you've got, you know, great schools with funding to them. And then it's like, okay, well, currently there's probably not somebody up there, you know, pulling the strings and, you know, deciding these things. But there was at one point and that system is still in place because we haven't put a stop to it. We haven't put something in that spoke to stop that wheel. It's just churning. Racism is just that, that background churn of America. The fleecing of the predominantly African-American sections of Harrisburg has had awful, if predictable, results. We have to go to the very base and the foundation of what it means to be a human being. The food, the shelter, the water. You can't be mad at a rioter because they're out there expressing their anger in a way because that's their only form of communication because they wouldn't have been taught to read or write enough, if you will, to even have a voice to communicate their, their issues. You can just look at the most basic form of communication for a human is violence when they can't communicate. But back at the Milton Hershey School as a high schooler, Gilliam had a strong academic career. And he developed physically to 6'5 and about 275 pounds. He played well as a tight end in football to the point that he attracted the interest of several top Division I college programs. One would think that the next cut of Gilliam would be of him waxing poetic about the value of athletics as an on-ramp to a better life for African Americans. In fact, he has a different perspective. I've got an interesting perspective when it comes to the African American or the minority in sports, in all honesty. It's pitched as an opportunity for African-Americans to break a generational curse, but in reality, it, it almost reaffirms it. And that a little black boy in the hood is only ever told that the only way you get out is to be an athlete, a rapper, or a drug dealer. Despite his ambivalence, Gilliam realized that he loved playing football and that if things went well at whatever college he chose, he had a chance to make it to the NFL. Now, about that college choice... It was a matter of three things. I wanted to be fairly close to home. The mom and the family could come watch me play. I wanted my degree to mean something. Like, I wanted my degree to hold some weight. Like, I didn't want to go to a place and, oh, if you're a football player at that place, we know you probably didn't earn your degree. That degree you got doesn't really mean much to us in the corporate world. I wanted my degree to mean something. And then third, I wanted to go to a school that gave me a shot to make it to the NFL. While at Penn State, Gilliam pursued academics with the same zeal as he did football. I mean, somehow he was able to practice and play games, all the while going for a triple major. I started with just business, and then I had a huge interest in design because I did graphic design and video production. So I was like, all right, me, what's a good major? Marketing, advertising, something like that. I could do one of those. So let's add that in there. Then while I was studying, I, I started just a double major. And as I was doing business and advertising, I was taking a lot of psychology classes, how to manage people, color psychology and advertising. I was like, man, like I, Psychology is kind of the foundation of a lot of these different things. 
and I'm knocking these classes out. I wonder how many more credits I would need to add another one. So I looked at it, talked to my academic advisor, like, hey, let me throw another one on there. We're going to knock these things out while y'all are paying for my college. <laughs> on the field, Gilliam played well as a freshman, but as a sophomore, he suffered a horrific injury, a tear of his ACL, MCL, and PCL, basically exploding his knee. That led to a rehab that was beyond arduous. I got to be honest with you, you know, what I saw in there and some of the damage that we had to put together, we got a very low shot of continuing to play football at a high level. And I was like, well, like, well what are my chances here, Doc? Like, what, are you, what are you saying? He was like, I'll be honest with you, Gary, probably like 10% chance. And I was like, oh, that's huge. I'm with that. Shoot. I had like a half a percent chance to get out the hood. I'll take 10. <laughs> so you know, I put my head down and went to work and grinded and grinded and grinded. And it was one of the most, it was one of the darkest times of my life. I had to be in one of those like hover rounds to get to class. It was like blizzarding and at Penn State. I'm trying to get to my classes and maintain a double major at the time, all while still going to rehab three times a day, which sucks. And I had to start it over after each surgery. So now I'm just doing, you know, like sandbag stuff, which is super boring. It just works on your, on your brain and your ego as a professional, or not a professional at that point, but as a collegiate athlete, you're just like, I know I can do more than this, but I can't because of this little ligament. <laughs> And my grades were starting to go down and I had always had straight A's and very good grades. My grades are starting to go down because I've gotten to a point where like, look, I don't even want to go to class because I just, I guess I'll just go to rehab or roll over out of bed. At this point, I just want to walk. Like, I don't even want to play football. I don't even want to get these degrees. I just want to be able to walk and be able to, you know, have independence to myself. I hate relying on people. The only reason that I got out of it, I remember calling back to Milton Hershey, actually, to Mrs. Ainsworth. And she was our junior chapel leader. Junior chapel was like Sunday school, if you will. I remember talking to her and as soon as I remember calling her and, and she picked up the phone and I just started crying. I was just in such a dark place of, of no hope and just there was no way to get out of it. And like, I remember saying like, what have I done in my life to deserve this stuff? Like I've always been someone who's been by the book and doing good things. Why is this happening to me? And her being a super religious person, the way she explained it was, as we've all heard, God gives the hardest battles to the strongest soldiers. And for whatever reason, it just really resonated with me at that moment. And I was like, you know what, this is all this anguish and all this hurt, all these things, something's on the end of this. It's carving my character for something. After 18 months, Gilliam finally made it back onto the field for Penn State. But the injury had cost him some of his speed, and speed was his special sauce as a tight end, and maybe his ticket to the NFL. Gilliam ultimately realized that, while he might have just average speed for an NFL tight end prospect, he would still be considered fast, if light, as an offensive tackle. Switching positions like that near the end of one's college career was almost unheard of, but... So in foresight and thinking about what my future would be, I was like, look, I can either try and make it to the NFL as an average athletic tight end, or I can try and convince my coach to allow his starting tight end in one of the most pivotal positions in his offense to switch to offensive tackle to give myself a better shot, again, forward thinking, to make it into the NFL. His head coach, Bill O'Brien, now in the same role with the NFL's Houston Texans, agreed to the switch. Gilliam had been granted an extra year of athletic eligibility due to his injuries, so going into his extra campaign, he was ready to play tackle. But then, Coach O'Brien told him there was a good chance he'd take an NFL job. So Gilliam had a choice. 
come back for his final season to play for a new coach who might not be so sanguine about the position switch or leave Penn State and try and make it in the NFL. Problem was, Gilliam really had no experience at tackle, but he decided to give it a go and declared for the NFL draft in 2014. Since there wasn't much tape of Gilliam playing tackle for NFL scouts to digest, there was a lot of pressure on him on his pro day when scouts from 31 of the 32 teams came to Penn State to test him on all sorts of drills. The one team that didn't come, the defending Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks. They worked him out privately. You think doing a workout will be, you know, running, pushing, doing all this stuff. But while I'm doing like kick slides and such, coach is like, all right, asking me questions. Like, what kind of car do you have? What year is it? What's the model? What's your mom's little name? Like, that fast. As you're moving, like, he was, he's like, I want to see if you can move and think on your feet. And I'm like, well, I'm about this. Like, I like this, this mental stuff. I'm down. And obviously, I'm athletic, so that stuff came easy. So, you know, bang, did, did what I had to do and killed it. Did very, very well. Then the draft came and went. Because of his injury history and his lack of history at tackle, all 32 teams passed on Gilliam over all seven rounds. Disappointed? Yes. Defeated? Hell no. Gilliam and his agent began working the phones during the post-draft maelstrom known as undrafted free agency, where the best eligible undrafted players try to find a team that will sign them as a long-shot candidate to make the squad and training camp. For Gilliam, that team was the Seattle Seahawks. Once he got to training camp, he knew the odds were against him. But as with his rehab from knee reconstruction, Gilliam was undaunted. It's like you're at the bottom of the totem pole again. It's super vulnerable. You don't really know what's going on. You're just trying to figure things out. And then to make it worse, they did just win a Super Bowl, and I am an undrafted player, which means they got very good players, and they probably don't need to sign me. <laughs> and there's other players in my class they drafted at my position. <laughs> so I got a long road ahead of me. But, like, all right, let's go. Let's put our head down. Let's show the coaches we're coachable. Every day before practice, I would ask coach, what's one thing you want me to work on today? And I would follow up after practice, like, how did it look? I could do it again tomorrow. Let's focus. Like, you know, so I was very intentional with what I was doing. Every little bit, every day, every day, every day. And I learned that from Coach Geyer in high school. Every day, you either get better or you get worse. You never stay the same. So I made it like, even if it's in my brand and what I'm doing, I want to make sure the coaches know that's what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm moldable. Like, you can form me into the player that I need to be. I don't have a bunch of bad habits. I don't have years of playing offensive line work. I'm going to make mistakes because I don't have those years, but I also won't make those mistakes because I don't have those years. So finding a happy medium and – there were a few injuries, as there always is in football, through you know spring ball and, and training camp and stuff. I also played well and, like I said, got better and better and better every game, every game, every game in terms of preseason and ended up making a team. Not only did he make the team, but Gilliam got to play on special teams and as a backup offensive lineman as the Seahawks worked to achieve the hardest thing in team sports, to repeat as champion. Oh, yeah. There was one thing that Gilliam prepared for in practice, but never did in a game. Remember, Gilliam originally was a tight end, so he had the ability to catch passes as well as block. So each week, the Seahawks would practice a different trick play, 
in which an offensive lineman would be used as an eligible receiver to surprise the defense. If the play worked as dialed up, no one would cover the lineman until it was too late, and then all he has to do is catch the ball. That is, if the play is called, which it wasn't all season long, until the NFC Championship game, that is, where the winner would go to Super Bowl 49 versus Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. The Green Bay Packers against the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle. The Seahawks were struggling, down 16-0 to the Packers in the third quarter. The crowd at CenturyLink Field was deathly quiet. Seattle finally got a drive going, but it stalled. Time to try a field goal to make the score 16-3 and get back into the game a bit. Except that's when they called for the fake. Now, know that they had run this play in practice just that week and Gilliam dropped the ball. Also know that 60,000 plus people in the stands and 50 million or so people on TV would be watching. Know that Gilliam hadn't had a pass thrown to him in a game, much less caught one in years. And know that if the play failed, the odds were very strong that Seattle's season would end one game short of the Super Bowl. So what happened? We'll let Gilliam take it from here. And oh yeah, the John Gilliam refers to in this cut is the holder for the field goal who becomes the passer on the play. Okay, now it's all you, Gary Gilliam. So... The way they're lined up, it's coming to my side. So I see that pre-snap. I'm like, all right, it's on. Like, let's, oh, this is it. <laughs> this is it. Let's go. <laughs> Boom. I release and I run in. And like, I kind of like run toward the linebacker, pretend like I was about to block him. Just kind of like mosey toward him. He took the bait. He like dodged me like he was trying to avoid a block and went to run toward John. I'm like, oh, got him. Looked over my shoulder and I was like, all right, where's the ball at? And John was kind of late on it. So I kind of had to, you know, lag a little bit. But caught it, looked it in, tucked it away. and. Scored a touchdown. Touchdown Seahawks. Scored by Gary Gilliam. The crowd went absolutely bonkers. There's an image in Sports Illustrated, a double page of it, of me scoring my touchdown and like yelling. And you can just see all the fans just like, ah! It was, it was the craziest moment ever. I just remember yelling and my teammates jumping all me. It was awesome. Gilliam's surprise touchdown turned the game around. More crazy stuff happened and the Seahawks ended up winning in sudden death overtime. This meant a trip to Super Bowl 49, and let's just say that Seattle could not finish the job against the Pats. I think I speak for all of America beyond New England's borders when I say, oh, the pain. After three more seasons with the Seahawks, Gilliam moved over to the division rival San Francisco 49ers in 2017. And while Gilliam, who last played in the NFL in 2018, is still open to returning to the league if the situation is right, his main focus is on turning the Bridge Eco Village, an accessible, innovative, mixed-use development, into a reality in Harrisburg and then beyond. Before we get into the what of it, let's talk about the why. 
as in why the bridge eco-village is so necessary. Gilliam, who touched on the why, systemic racism, systemic oppression, earlier in our conversation, builds on it here. The system of essentially limiting information from people, right? So I'll speak on property values, how property values are directly correlated to the funding for a school. And the property values have been determined by redlining. So someone went on a map and determined that these places are going to be worth more. These ones are going to be worth less. We'll approve loans for this place, not approve loans for this place. And that happened years ago. The average white person who had grandparents who were white, they were able to do certain things on a generational wealth scale, like acquire a house in their name and pass some of that down through generations. As opposed to mine, where three of my four grandparents are color and they didn't have those opportunities and it wasn't passed down to my parents or to me. So now that value of a house that has been determined by a red line is what's educating the children which now you're not getting the right teachers in, the right resources in. So now a whole generation of kids are now they themselves not going to have enough education to provide enough money to even buy, rebuy a house within their hood, if you will, to raise the property value, to get the right funding into a school to help the next generation, right? It's a generational thing. It becomes a system that was set up generations ago that still churns in the background of America and has not been checked because the majority of the population of our country benefits from that system without even knowing. If my name was Jamal Johnson and I put in a college application or even a, you know my resume and someone else who has the exact same education decides to put his application and his name's John Smith and not Jamal Johnson, even though our accolades are, I had a better GPA or whatever else, that employer, this is proven, is going to choose the other guy over Jamal. And that's just based off the fact that that's probably an urban African-American name. Not that that's right. Not that you can prove that, but numbers show it. And whether people are doing it consciously or subconsciously, that's just what happens. So Gilliam has set up the why. Now it's time for him to talk about the what of the Bridge Eco Village. So the Bridge Eco Village is a combination of a few different things five different branches, work, eat, live, learn, and play. Each of those five branches are attacking a different problem in our society. Work branch is a co-working space, a maker space. That one was directly inspired by Milton Hershey graduates. And the fact that we all had our different quote unquote majors and minors at the school and our different expertise and the fact that Milton Hershey wanted us to be able to make a living with our own two hands. And that in my opinion, the school didn't necessarily do the best job of providing that bridge from Milton Hershey School to the real world. A lot of those kids would often fall flat on their face because it's almost too structured at the school and there's not enough of a transition period into the real world that will smack you real hard. So a space where these young adults can now be in an environment of incubation, work together to form LLCs and businesses to have another stream of income for themselves so that they can start to create that financial independence from the start. Next is eat, much needed given the food desert that is a good chunk of Harrisburg. The top three killers of African-American, you know, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, all directly correlated to food. And the point of pain that I saw was part of its education, but part of its access. 
there's food deserts by design in a lot of these urban centers. So let's solve that. Let's transform these food deserts into food oases. And we've got the technology to do it. There's massive buildings that can be acquired and transformed into urban agriculture centers with aquaponics, aeroponics, hydroponics, using solar panels, greenhouses that can produce way more food than that community needs, which creates another form of independence. For those keeping score at home, hydroponics is a method of growing plants without using soil. Aquaponics refers to using wastewater from farming a fish to nourish the soil. And aeroponics is a system of growing plants solely with mist. This combination of innovative urban farming will help irrigate that food desert. Okay, now it's on to live and how Gilliam wants to use the Bridge Eco Village to take on homelessness. We have a lot of homeless people out here who do a lot of drugs on the streets. And it's supposedly it's a homeless problem, right? It's a homeless problem, homeless problem, homeless problem. Well, how you solve a homeless problem? You build homes, right? But you don't build affordable homes. You don't build low-income homes. You build working class, middle class homes, because that's where the issue's at. In places like Seattle, San Francisco, these tech centers with these big companies, they now are paying their employees lots of money. And trust me, landlords see that. So they start to raise the rents. They start to raise what they're selling houses for. Property values start to go up. So the people who are your police officers, your nurses, your doctors, maybe not doctors, (laughs) teachers, can no longer live where they work. So that the middle class starts to find lower class homes. And by them doing that, it's not saturated and the lower class people can't get homes anymore. So they end up homeless. And if you know anything about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that very base, that food, shelter, water, shelter, 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 you start taking away some of those things and people will try and find that love and belonging in anywhere and in anything. And in most cases, they find it in drugs because they're trying to escape the reality. So if you want to solve the homeless problem, if you want to solve the drug problem, you need to build middle-class homes and keep middle-class people in those homes. That's kind of the pivot of what the bridge is, is getting people in one location so they don't have to be traveling. They got all the resources in one place. And it's from affordable to upper-class with a heavy lean into your workforce housing. Now the bridge eco-village takes on learn, which means job training, financial literacy. I spoke on that a little bit before, not just teaching people or talking at people about repairing your credit, but fixing their credit for them, showing them the leverage that credit to go buy, you know, what they need to in terms of assets, buying a, a multi-unit as opposed to a single family home with an FHA loan. So now you don't need 20%, you can use three and a half percent. So some of these tips and tricks that you learn as you start to gain wealth, but bringing them back down to people who need them, getting the information from the people who have it to the people who need it. And last, but certainly not least, and then the play one's fairly simple. As humans, we're social beings and need entertainment, obviously. So providing a space for traditional concerts, go-karts. In terms of sustainability, electric go-karts, we'd like to have virtual reality spaces, augmented reality spaces, meaning these spaces can then be flexible, used for other things, so they're more sustainable. You put on a VR helmet and you can go anywhere. That experience is only getting better as technology gets better. So have you leaned into that as well? So that's work, eat, live, learn, play. Together, those five things make up an eco-village. Work, eat, live, learn, and play. Got it. But where does the eco part fit into the eco-village beyond urban agriculture? 
and eco because the heart of it is that eat branch with the solar panels, water collection, you know, growing food to balance out that carbon footprint. So what Gilliam is envisioning with the Bridge Eco Village is a new, equitable, healthy, environmentally sustainable system that will ultimately oust the oppressive incumbent system. So providing a a true system that combats systematic racism and or oppression, but by not just talking about it and not blaming it on somebody, but you set up a system that just empowers people. It's providing them with the education, the resources, the food, the incubation, the synergy of humans being together, teaching the skills they need to. And then we see where we all get when we reach the top of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that self-actualization. You want to give the best of you back to society. But you can't even talk about that before you take care of food, shelter, water, safety, security, love and belong. You got to create the environment before you start talking about the spiritual things, what it means to be a man or a woman or God. Yes, the Bridge Eco Village's goals are really lofty, heavenly almost. The obvious question is, where does the funding come from? Don't just inject money into the hood. Go. Go there. You be the one that develops it and, and, and makes it into what it needs to be. Don't put that responsibility on somebody else. They're obviously not doing it. There's tons of money out there. Direct your talents and your effort to that. We're happy about raising $10 million to fight cancer, but I'm thinking like, shoot, if you injected that $10 million into getting a plant-based fast food restaurant into a hood instead of McDonald's, you could very well lower the rate that someone's getting cancer. It's a public-private partnership. You know, these projects take a lot of money. So being able to get money in from private investors, using that money to also capture public grants, so beginning some public money, but then also doing some crowdfunding from people in the community that want to be involved and give their resources towards some things. So it's a combination of, of all those. And a lot of the main investors that we target, so I'll speak on Harrisburg first, so like myself, Jordan Hill, Noah Spence, some of these professional athletes that have come out of Harrisburg are some of the first ones that we contact. One, because they've got the financial means, hopefully. And two, because it's also a cultural shift. We want athletes and entertainers to be the one that push this entrepreneurial shift in in a mindset of our culture, if you will. We always let everybody that's involved with the bridge know this is always going to be about people over profit, but there is a way to do both together. Massive objectives that we're trying to hit when it comes to power, water, carbon, and waste. And that takes a lot more than just the development of the building. That's the people within the building and their day-to-day practices. So within that, teaching businesses how to be more sustainable in their operation, showing people how to live in a more sustainable way in terms of their food, capturing the green waste, putting it back into our bio-waste food digester to create energy and nutrients to grow more food, to close that carbon loop and that waste loop. So operating as a tree does in nature and biomimicry and that we're giving more back to our environment than we're taking from it. The Bridge Eco Village has taken possession of the former Bishop McDevitt High School building in Harrisburg. According to Gilliam, the plan is for the entire development to be fully operational in the next 18 to 24 months. Markets under consideration for expansion beyond Harrisburg include Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Houston, and Seattle. If you would like to find out more about The Bridge, please visit them at thebridgeecovillage.com. And Gary Gilliam can be found on Twitter or Instagram at Gary, and that's G-A-R-R-Y underscore Gilliam. Thank you for joining us on Green Sports Pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and on Green Sports Blog. See you next time. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.